Hello and welcome to this podcast from the Centre for Geopolitics, in which we discuss geopolitical issues in historical context with Suzanne Rain and Ali Ansari. Today we're going to explore ungoverned spaces. The concept of ungoverned spaces has been around for a while. Conventional political theory holds that the nation state, the sovereign state, is the legitimate source of order and provider of public services in any society, whether democratic or, or not. But the existence of ungoverned space challenges that. State-centric approaches are unlikely to supplant many different kinds of authority, the rise of non-state actors. We're joined today by General Sir Graham Lamb, who once told me that there was no such thing as ungoverned spaces, just places governed by people you don't like. Graham served for 38 years as a soldier from 1973 to 2009, and he had a wide range of operational experience in a number of combat situations, and as he would say, it has experience of failing and succeeding in war, on operations, and in post-war reconstruction, let's put it like that. In particular, Graham served most recently in Iraq and Afghanistan and was part of the 2006-2007 awakening in Iraq. So thank you very much for joining us. It's lovely to have you with us. I'm going to start by asking the kind of big question. What do we think of when we talk about ungoverned spaces? What does it mean to you? Thanks for inviting me along and, and making a mess of the day. But I think perception is reality. And so what happens is we've got into a frame of mind where we see and talk about ungoverned space. And therefore, it's the idea of an empty space. I remember giving a lecture a number of years ago, which is probably where I made that comment and you picked it up and remembered it, Susanna, which was... And I had just merely, in fact, a shot of Afghanistan, mountains in the background, and a Predator B drone with a hell arm hanging below his wing, flying across there, not a person in sight. And the result was, that looks like ungoverned space. But I said, understand this, there's not a single rock out there, not a trickle of water that someone at the local level doesn't know who owns it. And so we look at it through the lens of our life and our upbringing and our circumstances, as Ali said, of the state, the sovereign, the nation approach to understanding governance. And then we see nothing there and assume it is ungoverned. My view is simply this, nothing further from the truth. The reality is, of course, it's recognised. You can go and look at the Foreign Office websites and these, and you'll find really well-written articles about in 2014 and earlier, which talks about ungoverned space being this complex substrata of clan, family, tribe, of which there's nothing there that isn't owned, or at least people know who owns it. What you're saying, basically, Graham, and, and, and thank you very much for coming on uh, today, is that even the term itself, ungoverned, is not an accurate way to describe what we're seeing. It's horribly wrong. You know, it's a bit like Arab Spring. Yeah. It was neither a spring <laughs> nor Arab. What we're seeing is, you know, a, a world in many ways where what you have is a failure of the social contract, you know, off screen now at the moment, yeah. But, but the point being that we pick up the term because it's given to us, it sounds, it's a nitty soundbite, and we therefore lock onto it. Perception becomes reality. So is this a question, because we like, you know how we are in the West, we like everything to be categorised in some way. Very neat. We like our governance structures, we've organised the, the rules-based international system, and we now have this phrase non-state actors, so we have state actors and non-state actors. 
is that kind of what we're talking about here? Do we have to accept that there are a group of actors in the world who aren't states like we would want them to be, and they're never going to be states, and and therefore the kind of state system isn't quite right? I, I go further than that. I would think that, you know, 1648 and the Treaty of Westphalia, the Pact of Westphalia, whatever you want to call it, you know, bangs in and turns around and says, we need to get some control over chaos in Europe. Good call. And we have then sovereignty and the nation state being almost, you know, part of our operating structure. Oh, it's a very Western view. Well, I'm not sure that discussion took place in Africa or in Asia or in South America. But the world order fits into that that space. So consequently, we then look and say, if you are not failing, faltering, and there's that lovely, the, the, I can't remember who does it, does the uh, looks at, at failing states, and there's a, an index of which I think is about, you know, wherever it's 192 states or wherever the figure is, but over half of them fall into the faltering, failing category. So you think, actually, the world's not in great shape right now, but those then somehow need to pull themselves up to fit into the absolute top of the pile, which is like Finland, yeah, which then turns around and says, this is proper governance, and everything will be sweetness and light. Well, I think that's a load of bollocks. I mean, point to make, I mean, a, a couple of points you've raised there, which I think is, is very, very interesting. One is our whole understanding, of course, of the Peace of Westphalia, in a sense, the abridgment of our own history. So the way in which uh, we've come to understand the notion of the, the, the sovereign state. I mean, it's quite interesting, the work that we do really historically is to show that actually our understanding or the inheritance we have of what we consider to be the sovereign state is actually quite a simplistic reading of, of what happens in 17th century Europe. So that, that's one thing. The other thing, of course, is this growth of, I suppose, international law, which sets out the boundaries of the sort of these sort of what, what is considered governed, governed spaces. But of course, that's drawn very much from a European, even a Western experience, which as I mean, as you said, basically, it's, it's never done in consultation with obviously anyone else, you know, outside the sort of European sphere. So it, it, it tends to try and, you know, it's like we were, Suzanne, we were saying earlier, you know, in the sense of trying to squeeze in rather sort of awkward situations into these neat categories that simply don't work. Yeah, I, no, I, and I go further than that. Yeah. I turn and say that, you know, one of the reflections of COVID mm -hmm. Has been. I've just been listening. I mean, I've been in my own echo chamber, without any input. Now, this is that's why these podcasts are really clever because they absolutely are beginning to break through our own echo chambers. But the West, the Westphalian Pact, is an echo chamber. I remember William Hay very, very smartly when we were looking at talking about China, turning around and saying, "We can't solve the world's problems without China, but China will never play by our rules." Yeah. And so you think, "Whoa, what?" A, Let's now un just you know, let's disassemble and unpick that. And you think it's a really insightful view as to in fact how we are being challenged, contested, undone, whatever the case may be. Our order, as we see it, is our order. It's not the tribal or the clan or even the likes of China or other states. So we talk about non-state and non-state actors. My view is that we need to recognize that as many states are involved in challenging our model of world order as not. And that brings in a whole other dimension to this, which is there are elements, obviously, we, we, when we started off talking about ungoverned space, where we're talking about geography, and you always think of somewhere kind of hot and dusty, and the terrain's a bit inhospitable. Um, so it's so it's difficult to go there. It's difficult to to move without being in some way confined by people who don't like you very much. 
But then there's these kind of, well, the internet is potentially an ungoverned space. The global finance system is kind of that's, a, that's an excellent point. So, so we've so we've got physical ungoverned space, but I then presume, Graham, virtual. that you're going to say we've got a huge amount of virtual ungoverned space. Oh, as well. I, I, I think I, I think it's more than that. You know, you said that in these empty spaces, people who don't like us. Actually, the truth is, we don't understand them. You know, take the Tuareg in in Mali, seven tribes. Do we understand? the underlying reasons, the culture, the history. You know, people learn languages now. Actually, these computers will nail language really, really quickly. To me, what's really important as an old soldier, and I found it time and time again, I literally struggle with English, as you can probably recognize from this podcast. But the reality is that I don't speak any languages because just, I'm just useless at trying to speak languages. What I try and do is understand cultures, understand people, understand behavior, understand their history, understand all these things. And we don't. And as a result, therefore, you turn around and say, well, we talk about oh, Al-Shabaab or Boko Haram as being in fact this violent, whatever. And we say, do we really understand in Nigeria what, were the old, what has become the new farming space against the old grazing rights? And then you start looking and you begin to realize that you've got centuries old ways of living alongside each other, which are now being badly disrupted because of bad government or opportunity, and as a result, therefore, in fact, creating the very tensions and therefore the opportunity for bad actors to come in and engage with the local tribe, clan and family, whether it's on a religious or, in fact, an ideological baseline to turn around and say, be with us, not be with them. And them are not out there in these spaces. You raise a, a really important point, which I do want to get back to about this sort of the, the virtual ungoverned space, because actually, I mean, the interesting thing about that is it's, it's the development of an ungoverned space that actually we haven't kept up with governance, or well, governance hasn't kept up with it. I mean, nobody knows it. But, there's, but do uh, we even need governance? This is what, uh, that, well, what Graham's yeah. saying, is that, that we keep putting systems on things that actually break them. Yeah, because you, you turn around, fantastic point, because people say, you know, all politics are local. Yeah. My experience of an interesting, often a hard and unsuccessful life is being everything is local. Yeah. And, and the point here, and this is where I'm going to say my first controversial point of the podcast, if I may, uh, which is always, is that what we need is more history and less IR, if I may say so. And one of the reasons for that is because international relations tends to offer us a sort of a discipline, uh, one size fits all. And what you're saying, if I read you right, Graham, I mean, obviously you know, uh, come back on this, but if I read it, is if it's all local, we have to have a much better understanding of the diversity of governance, which, uh, or governance forms, uh, and really an understanding of local cultures. And I loved your point, actually, about this thing about it's, it's not languages per se, it's culture. So what we're saying, I mean, of course, that's a debatable concept in itself. However, I have said to people as well, and I'm, 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 I'm glad you said this, actually. Uh, I have said to people as well, there's not much point learning a language. I mean, what you need is you need to learn a language to understand the way people think Correct. and how they approach. Correct. Yeah. Because, you know, well, I'm glad and, you and, 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 and as a soldier, as a soldier, so I yeah. agree entirely what you're saying there, I, I left school at 17, so I'm no, no, no formal education, so, so other than life. As it stands, but but the point being that in many ways, you know, people out there are the part we keep on missing. Mm. We keep on applying a structure which we understand, and then read it into 
That's right. Yeah. And if you turn around and say, so I can communicate with an insurgent by sitting opposite him, mm -hmm. arm to the teeth, he's armed to the teeth, mm -hmm. safety catch off, having a conversation, and no one is going to drop a bottle or do something that's going to have everybody going to guns. I can communicate with that same individual by dropping a JDAM 2,000 pound bomb on one of his facilities. Right. I'm communicating to him. That's right. But I have to understand what motivates him. I have to understand his or her history. I have to understand their behavioral, their insensitivity. I've got to understand why they are where they are. And that, you know, I think it was, it was um, Wellington who said, you know, everything about life and everything about battle is no understanding, looking from the other side of the hill. That's right. So get on the other side of the hill and look back at yourself. And it's such... And it almost, it's a, it's, you know, you get this massive sort of relief as you suddenly realize, my goodness, I look complete fool. Would I fight me? And the answer is, yes, I would. So are we surprised, therefore, they're fighting us? So you have to have that conversation, but you have to understand. And that's not just language. I'm not decrying the importance of language. And you have to have people that really understand the nuances. No, absolutely. Yeah, because absolutely. I remember having a conversation with somebody in the 1950 brigade, 50, I think they were called in, one of the insurgent groups in Iraq here, of which it was going all wrong because the interpreter missed the word of which he implied a negotiation. And it suddenly got very cold and very steely because if it was a negotiation, the people on the other side of the table, the other side of the room, the other side of the cave I was in, were going to go, in fact, and have a one-way trip to the desert when they returned to the road. So it wasn't a negotiation. It was about understanding between two sides. So the accuracy of language is really important. But what really, 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 it's like the iceberg. You know, you're seeing the language is the one, one eighth of the top. It's the seven eighths below the waterline that will sink the Titanic and screw you. And so that's the bit that really matters. I think your point about, you know, communication taking many forms is, is actually spot. And I work uh, on a number of British political officers that used to operate in Central Asia and the Middle East in, in the 19th century. And one of the things they do come across very, very, but they stress it, is that a lot of communication is nonverbal. It's how you present yourself. And I, I think that's something we've lost. Actually. Yeah, because... I think it's something we've lost. Yeah, Can I ask a question? Yeah, sorry. Well, no, oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> you were talking about looking over the hill, and it made me think immediately about uh, President Biden's over-the-horizon capability which the Americans have been talking about as being the way that they're going to keep themselves secure from bad actors in the future. How does that go with the oh, see over the hill? America has enjoyed a dominant position in capability, nuclear and conventional, for some considerable number of decades. If you think that your safety will be provided by people like me alone, you're completely misunderstanding the threats you face. Because there is a bubble. You mean people like you, soldiers? Yeah, soldiers. Okay. Soldiers, airmen, sailors, yeah. marines, at the end yeah. of the day, that we can provide. So what we can do is we can defend and we can attack. We can do our part. Clausewitz, you know, famous mm -hmm. statement, once said, you know, you know, war is a continuum of politics and policy and by other means. means yeah. Actually, he just didn't finish his sentence. <laughs> what he should have said is, if war is a continuation of politics and policy by other means, to politics and policy, it must return. So the soldier only ever fits into a higher political architecture. 
a structure that in fact means that before he goes to war, when he's at war, and when he return and when you're trying to do the post-stabilization, it is all about what the end state, what the political realities will be. And therefore understanding the people, the culture, the history, all this stuff. Britain, we went first Afghan war badly, second Afghan war badly. Last time you know, I would rather we didn't. My view was third, third one was okay. Third, third one was okay. Third but, time lucky. But the reality is this: actually, was it a good decision or a bad decision? It was an unnecessary decision. Yes. From my point of view, with the yes. president. So I, I get that part. But the reality is that if you wish to build Iraq or, 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 or Afghanistan into a like of us or a 1960s model, which we remember from Kabul, ladies in dresses, sewing machines, cars on the road, all the road. Don't forget, Kabul was never one of the centers of power and authority in Afghanistan. It was all the others, Herat, Kandahar, Meshul Sharif, Lashkar, all these places that in fact the true authority of Afghanistan lay. Historically, the truth is, do we understand the Afghan? Churchill, Winston Churchill nailed it in 1896 when he wrote that wonderful letter, said, you know, that the, the Afghan is almost incomprehensible to the Western mind. It was as relevant then as it is now. They're wonderful people. I love that country. Fantastic. You know, people got such energy. But will I ever understand an Afghan? No. Can I work with them? Absolutely. But I do need to grasp, wrestle with. The real challenge is understanding his or her where they're coming from, where they're going to. If you're in a survival society, then you always and simply just go with the probability of outcome. No, that's you, you will not do something because in these states, you will be killed. Your entire family, your entire clan, your entire tribe will be hosed. So you go with the survival option. That's how it is. Probability of outcome, it's a, that's a good yeah. great and, and they make that judgment, not us. Yes. That's the point. We can say, you can have a fantastic life and all the rest, yeah, as it stands. They will then conclude with that. But I think we're drifting from the old central theme, which is ungoverned government space, because I go back to your point about the internet and all the rest. I think here's a really interesting. We're fixated because that's the way we tend to think about, oh, let's look at ungoverned spaces, these empty spaces in Somalia, in Mali, wherever it may be in the world, as we're in Afghanistan, under might, as being where the principal problem will arise. Actually, I think the principal problem for us in the West, for democracy, lies in the governed space, not the ungoverned space. And why do I say that? Because if you think in our democracy, rights, obligations, responsibilities, and freedoms, where are we being undone by others? And that is state, non-state, rogue, criminal organizations, keep the list off. We're being undone in our freedoms and our rights. We follow the obligations and responsibilities. They don't. Well, they don't feel they have to anyway. They, either they don't have to, or they just blind them. But let me sort of push you a little bit here. I mean, do you think, I mean, historically speaking, you know, you have these sort of governed and ungoverned spaces. And do you think in some ways the ungoverned spaces are that area of conflict or confrontation or whatever, or encounter, let's say, between these two different types of governed spaces? Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. It's the seams. You know, if you look That's at, because right, I, yeah. I do work with cyber and all the rest of you, right? and it's the seams. You, you turn and say, well, we had defences up. You know, we had, and you, and then you look at the system they had in place. It's all the gaps that existed, either where they could access or allow a logistic link to go through, or they didn't have sufficient cyber defense that, in effect, is where you make 
your entry point to then exploit the system. So the seams and the gaps are where, in fact, defense is weakest. No different than if you're attacking a fortress. Mm. You know, go through the gate, just knock the gate down, yeah, you know, yeah, to yeah, work yeah. out how to do the gate. Going through 18 feet of solid rock is going to take you a while. The gate's going to be easier. So, so in truth, you're looking for these gaps and seams. And exactly the same. In this governed space, I think in many ways, this is the space where we're being undone. You know, it's that lovely line. You take the writer, philosopher, and general, Sun Tzu. Yeah. Yeah. Wicked old general. You know, yeah. Thoughtful bloke. But he once said, if one party is at war with another and the other party does not realize it is at war, mm -hmm. The party who knows it's at war almost always has the advantage and usually wins. Mm. Now you think, well, that's a bit like one of the other statements, water will flow to the low ground. Yeah. And you give it the old no Sherlock, as it stands. <laughs> but the reality here is we have to then go back to the language, our own language, and say, how is it possible in our current thinking not to recognize that you were at war? We know what war looks like. And so you suddenly have to now rethink. And so it requires deep, reflective consideration of if one party is at war and the other party doesn't realize it's at war, so what's that going to look like? Well, it's not going to look like war as we know it, because otherwise you'd know you're at war. Trains, planes, and automobiles, bombers, all the stuff that goes with what we classically see as a force-on-force -force enterprise. Mm. What is undoing us today, in my personal view, is force-on-will. That is where we're being undone because people are not what we, following. What we really need is a return to the 19th century, which is probably a deeply unpopular. I think we've probably arrived at a return to the 19th <laughs> century, but to, the, the, the thing we haven't talked about here are the bad actors. Um, yeah. Because you could say, even in a sort of conventional ungovernment space, uh, who benefits? Who, be, who benefits from instability and is the creation of instability a tactic? Yes, um, of course it is. And also, you take Thomas Schelling, brilliant mind, yeah, one of the great mathematicians. You know, we had oh, von Neumann back in the 30s, Nash in the 50s, and then Schelling in the 90s, all Nobel winners. Yeah, I remember reading one of his books, and he talks about dynamic instability and not the management of risk, but the manipulation of risk. And so you have dynamic instability as something you create. Now, COVID and the current circumstances has given us persistent uncertainty. And people, businesses, everyone is struggling because we're looking for form. We're looking for structure. We're looking for the ability to be able to then govern that. Mm. And the truth of the matter is we're in persistent uncertainty. We're moving, having worked through COVID, we're now trying to work out how to work with COVID or the world. And actually, in fact, one of the, one of the, the, the sort of, just take a simple thought, and it's, and it's really important because it's this idea of academia is more about not being able to recite what somebody else has written, but to reflect on your own personal understanding of that, having looked at a number of senses, to then make sense of it. So the world that was two years, three years ago, was simply, we would talk about a work-life balance. Mm. If I'm not mistaken, today we're in a life-work balance. That simple reversal of work and lifestyle makes a significant difference to the rest of this decade of how we work. And, and so the truth of the matter is, we just don't think about things enough. 
We don't reflect, not from a point that he said this or she said that, or here's a wonderful being able to, I, I can recite huge, great tracts of Shakespeare because that was my punishment at school because I was dyslexic, so considered to be simply dumb. And this podcast is probably just reinforcing that to all yeah. the listeners as being no, an absolute truth. But the reality is that that part really, really mattered. So you, this idea of reflecting, of the idea of truly yourself as an individual thinking about what you've just heard from a professor or what you've read in a book and saying, what do I think? And that's why we take too easily because we're too damn busy. We're rushing around from here to there. We're doing, you know, don't, was that lovely line from, again, my old friend of Son Tzu, yeah? Tactics without strategy is the noise before defeat. We're into this idea of confusing activity with progress. One of the wonderful things about COVID, and most of it was not wonderful. It was really tragic for so many people individually as a family, or in fact, businesses or nations, and the loss of opportunity that is there. But one of it was it gave us time. And most people didn't take that time to think and reflect. And the truth of the matter is that's why these podcasts and these likes of allow people to sit back and think, well, I completely disagree with Graham. He's talking a complete load of bollocks. But he has to, or she has to turn around and justify to themselves, who judges you, you do, as to whether this makes sense and or take the time to listen to Susanna and Ali, who understand what they're talking about, and think that's really thoughtful. And then confirm and come to your own conclusions. That's the bit that really, really matters. Not being able to recite or write huge, great tracks of, in fact, other people's thoughts. They add to. There's a most wonderful line, my favorite all-time line in poetry from Ulysses, which simply says, I am a part of all that I have met. That'd be a separate podcast, I think, though. That <laughs> <laughs> would be a separate podcast. I, I, your, 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 your point about the, you know, the, the needing to think things through, and I think that is also uh, extremely important. And, and let, let's hope, actually, in some ways, if something good comes out of this, that there has been a time to sit down and sort of reflect a little bit more. Because, you know, one of the differences I think we have with our sort of our, you know, our accelerated march uh, towards progress in inverted commons, I should say, is that, you know, nobody actually stops to think about what, what the hell we're doing in some ways or, or, or where we're going. And I think, uh, you know, in some ways, what you're describing here is where, you know, reality sort of bites, you know, and, and you suddenly confront this thing where it just simply doesn't work. Some of these ideas put into practice simply don't work. I mean, they, they, or they're difficult. Or they're difficult. They're just difficult. Yeah. And, and, and the truth of the matter is, you know, these, these are true. Life is truly a wicked problem. Yeah. You've just got to wrestle with it from, you know, birth through to when I face plant. I can remember our Prime Minister, actually, Boris Johnson, giving a speech at the Foreign Office a couple of years ago. And he talks, uh, just you made me think about it, General. Um, he talked about the wildest and most ungoverned space of all, the human heart, which is kind of, I don't know whether that's from, that's a quote yeah. from something, it probably is, I don't know what it's from, but, but that's obviously what you were talking about. So this has been a really interesting conversation because we started off with quite, fact-based, state-based, geographically-based... Um, yeah, geopolitical. Geopolitical conversation. And we've ended up with um, the human heart, the wildest and most ungoverned space of all. Do, are, are we concluding, really, that that sort of proliferation of ungoverned spaces and people wanting to do things differently, which, as you said, has always been there, needs to be much more 
something that is factored into the next decade of foreign policy making and strategic mm. thinking and all that. I mean, I'm thinking, Ali, we're running out of time now, but obviously your studies of the Iranian system, which mm. which is essentially a resistance mentality, which seeks to subvert rather than sorry, I'm massively you may disagree. Well, I mean one of one of the things, I mean let me let me come because you brought brought in Iran and I always used to argue with people. So and I'd be interested in your views here, Graham, actually. So this had to do with Iraq and we used to talk about Iraq and you know what the Iranians were doing in Iraq. I always used to say to colleagues here, I said, the problem with you guys is you're thinking in the wrong way. I said, you're coming in here to establish order, but the Iranians thrive in chaos, and therefore they're not interested in the order that you want to impose. They're actually doing rather well. And, of course, it comes to your point. I mean, of course, that's a, that's a simplification as well. I mean, when I say, yeah, what we're really talking about is different types of governed spaces, isn't it? and their form of, of governing was, in a way, a, quite a different way of uh, government or governing that you might, or governance, I think is a better word, uh, that the West was bringing. And I think, I, I don't know, a, a, a dissonance there, you know, used to say, well, this is what we want to bring. And I'd say, but the Iranians are actually bringing something different. You don't like what you see here, but they know this area. They know the terrain, they know the political landscape, they know the culture, and they sort of work with it. You're trying to impose something which would take a very long time, in a sense, to to uh, to work out. I mean, I don't know what you think of that. I mean, no, no, I, Ali. Again, I, you know, I, I can't remember who said once said. He said the greatest general of all is patience. Absolutely right. Yeah, and, and Tolstoy. Tolstoy. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Tolstoy. He was so on the money with his title. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. How often do we look at the world? To go back to the earlier discussion of war or peace. Actually, that's not the title of his book. Yeah, I hope it was Tolstoy. It's, 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 it's war and peace. Yeah. This idea of life is this wonderful contradiction. You can only appreciate linen sheets if you slept on rocks. Mm. You can only understand grief if you've understood happiness and wrong. These, th- this is this is how it's all come together. But to go back to your point, I think you're abs- absolutely right, Ali. That we kept on wanting Iraq to conform to our design of how it should operate and conform and look westward rather than eastward. Actually, to Iran, who's sitting on its border, who had a most bloody war with them over eight years, a million men and women lost in that conflict, its neighbour, over the way, religiously close, a whole range of, of, of and historical reference points to which they draw, and they look at a very completely different outcome. And where I would challenge you, Ali, is I'm not sure Iran wants chaos. Yes, no, it I wants don't, yeah. shellings, dynamic yes, instability. That's right. Because what instability, uncertainty brings is it runs the thing longer. I think most, you know, what was that lovely line by Macmillan? Events, dear boy, events. Yeah. It wasn't politics. Actually, events dictate outcomes, but the other is this slow behavioral shift where you bring doubt. So America, to go back to an earlier part, we almost started this conversation, we keep on drifting, but we can pull ourselves back in again. The idea of having this incredible dominating capability over, over the horizon, strike, whatever it may be. Actually, the truth is, in fact, America will be undone from within. It's a divided nation in many ways today, Republican and Democrat, wealthy and not so wealthy. Mm. You know, I'm told the figures, half the world, wherever it is, 3.5 billion people 
if you summed up their, their value and their worth, yeah, in monetary terms rather than actually their contribution to humanity, that is equivalent to the eighth most richest men and women in the world. And you think that's gonna suck. Yeah, as, as it stands. So, so so you have this incredible what I call so so if I want to undo America, don't you know go for the indirect approach, Captain Basil a little hard, yeah, about balance, about psychology, about a different way of undoing strength. You know, we do SWOT analysis. We don't look at ourselves hard enough. We keep on looking at our strengths rather than, and then articulate our weakness. It goes back to my point about force on force. What is the, you know, I remember in Germany as a young officer, what's the best form of anti-tank defense? Another tank. Now there's an element of truth in that. A tank is an imposing and intimidating piece of hardware. There's no two ways about it. But kill the will of the crew to fight that tank, and the tank is just a pile of metal. Mm -hmm. There's this fantastic speech, which I can't now quote exactly, by Abraham Lincoln to the Young Men's Lyceum at Springfield, Illinois, where he said exactly what you say. He asked the question, from where should we expect the approach of danger? Mm. And he made the geographical point. He said, it is exceptionally unlikely that America, this great landmass surrounded by oceans, is going to be invaded from overseas. But the threat from within, the threat to our democracy from within, is where we need to focus. Yeah, and, 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 and you take you take it together, yeah. Burgess Pete, that this yeah. nation, mm. yeah, absolutely, it's, he turns around right at the end and says, it's us. It's not about this external. So the external forces will, will bring in doubt. One of the great strengths of our democracy is this wonderful feeling of freedom and, 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 and rights. We thrive on it. We believe in it. But what we then allow it to do is begin to then take an energy of its own where you have. If you take your nation, society, and individual, and increasingly what we do is we turn it on its head, where the individual, society, and the nation then become reversed. Mm -hmm. And the individual takes a dominating position. Well, democracy is all about the idea of accepting the collective view rather than saying, I have a point of view. I will continue within the arrangements that are to voice my opinion rather than saying, this is wrong, I disagree. At that point in time, you are now challenging democracy, the very freedoms and rights that we have defended. Me as a soldier, spent my entire life, maybe misguidedly, whatever you fancy, but the truth of the matter is, for me, it mattered. I was defending and looking to do something that was bigger than self, and it was genuinely about trying to challenge what I saw as bad and evil actors. So I like the Prime Minister's comment when he talks about the heart, because invariably, these are the things on which decisions and change and challenge and contested views occur. I entirely, I was just going to say, I, mean, I entirely agree with you in terms of, of the, the, the language of chaos, of course. I mean, I, you know, that, that's also one of the things that we're guilty of in the sense that, you know, when, when we try and make comments, of course, you know, we tend to abbreviate or, 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 or abridge what you're saying. I think your, your point was absolutely spot on about that. It's a different form of, of, of really governance. But to bring us back, in a sense, also to this relationship between the government and ungoverned. Uh, spaces or the different types of governance, as you were bringing out, is your sort of argument in that sense that you know we focus too much on what we term ungoverned spaces. Obviously, uh, you know we, we we don't mean it in that sense, and really we should be looking, I suppose, in tandem to those governed spaces that are antithetical in our sense to our own values 
in conjunction with the sort of the, the no man's land in the middle, if I can put it that way. No, interesting, Ali. I would say the one it's not not the ones that don't conform to us. Yeah. Actually, the governed space I am most worried about. Yeah. Is our own. Ah. Yeah. Without any ah. question of doubt, okay. there is no law in Britain against subversion. It has to be a criminal act for it then to be to be de denied. Otherwise, you can use the press, social media. You can use mis. And by the way, you know, go back. You look at you know. I think it was uh, Ivanov in two thousand five. You know, said so. The the, the Russian defense minister. We are in an undeclared war. You look at Gerasimov in about twenty sixteen or twenty fourteen when he turns around and says that. Information is four times more useful, more has a greater effect than military capability. That the military are subordinate to this space. And by the way, if I was on the other side, I'd be doing absolutely this. That's my point. I would be having and I'd be creating doubt. Doubt in our democracy, doubt in our freedoms, doubt in, in fact, what I call in our in our sort of benefits of a better society. Few refugees break from wherever desperate circumstances they are and run to Russia or to China. They'll go to Norway, they'll go to Sweden, they'll come to France, they'll come to Britain. They'll go to America if they could. But are you saying then that in a sense this virtual ungoverned space, you know, this sort of information work, that is being used by state actors of one sort or another to basically sow the sort of Doubt, uncertainty, yeah, whatever. That's absolutely. Right. Yeah. Now you take you take you know terrorists for instance. I remember I used to watch you know in cases with against provisional IRA in Northern Ireland, going back to the good old days, there, where the questions that were presented by the lawyer was not about defending his client; it was actually trying to find the source of intelligence. So they would. So it was all about trying to understand when did the security forces know that this event was about to happen because that told the opposition, the provisionals, at what point in time, who knew and where they knew and to be able to therefore narrow down their own target as to who the informant was or how the information got, whether it's a technical means rather than a human means as it comes through. So, so you have this, what I call this constant attack here. So it's not just nation states for Russia, it must be. For, 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 you know, I, I understand it. You know, in many ways, I always thought 1989, no, 1998, 1998, um, by the way, how did Britain, a tiny little nation with what at that point in time probably 37, 42 million people, how do we build an empire? Divide and rule. And so the truth of the matter is whether you want to divide NATO, whether you want to divide the allies and the alliances of the American and Europe, or whether you just want to divide Europe, the truth of the matter is these are tools you want because these are the scenes. Now, at the same time, criminal organizations, small groups, terrorists, everyone who can, including the cybermen, will move into those spaces because it's opportunity. You know, and for many, it's about money. For others, it's about actually driving an ideology they believe in. I get that. But the truth of the matter is, it absolutely bruises and damages us and the coherence and the centricity of, in fact, what I call what we as a nation stand for and stand by. 
Thank you, Graham. We're going to have to end there because we're out of time, but that was fantastic and you've given us a huge amount to think, think about. Absolutely. To think about and, we, we and may have to do part two. With a drink. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Lovely.